Chapter 16 of The Tree of Appomattox. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Packard of Western Colorado. The Tree of Appomattox by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 16 The Closing Days. Within the southern lines, and just beyond the range of the northern guns, two men sat playing chess. They were elderly, gray, and thin, but never had the faces of the two colonels been more defiant. With the Confederacy crumbling about them, it was characteristic of both that they should show no despair, if in truth they felt it. Their confidence in Lee was sublime. He could still move mountains, although he had no tools with which to move them, and the younger officers, mere boys, many of them, would come back to them again and again for encouragement. Spies had brought word that Grant, after nine months of waiting, and with Sheridan and a huge cavalry force on his flank, was about to make his great attack. But the dauntless souls of Colonel Leonidas Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hilaire remained unmoved. I'm glad the rains are apparently about to cease, Hector, said Colonel Talbot. When the ground grows firmer, it will give General Lee a chance to make one of his great circling swoops and rout the Yankee army. So it will, Leonidas. We've been waiting for it a long time, but the chance is here at last. We've had enough of the trenches. It's a monotonous life at best. Ah, I take your pawn, the one for which I've been lying in ambush more than a month. But that pawn dies in a good cause, Hector. When he fell, he uncovered the path to your remaining night, as a dozen more moves will show you. What is it, Harry? Harry Kenton, thin but hardy and strong, saluted. We have news, sir, he replied, that a portion of the Union Army under General Sheridan is moving. I bring you a dispatch from General Lee to march and meet them. Other regiments, of course, will go with you. They put away the chessmen, and with St. Clair and Langdon, marshaled the troops in line of battle. Harry felt a sinking in his heart when he saw how thin their ranks were, but the valiant colonels made no complaint. Then he went back to General Lee, whose manner was calm in face of the storm that was so obviously impending. The information had come that Grant and the bulk of his army were marching to the attack on the White Oak Road, and if he broke through there, nothing could save the Army of Northern Virginia. Harry, after taking the dispatch to the Invincibles, carried orders to another regiment, while Dalton was engaged on similar errands. It was obvious to him that Lee was gathering his men for a great effort, and his heart sank. There was not much to gather. Throughout all the long autumn and winter the Army of Northern Virginia had disintegrated steadily. Nobody came to take the place of the slain, the wounded, and the sick. All the regiments were skeletons. Many of them could not muster a hundred men apiece. But Harry saw no sign of discouragement on the face of the chief whom he respected and admired so much. Lee was thinner and his hair was whiter, but his figure was as erect and vigorous as ever, and his face retained its ruddy color. Yet he knew the odds against him. Grant, outside his works, mustered a hundred thousand trained fighters, not raw levies, and the seasoned army of the Potomac that had persisted alike through victory and defeat, and proof now against any adversity, saw its prize almost in its hand, and the worn veterans whom the southern leader could marshal against Grant were not one-third his numbers. 
The orderly who usually brought Lee's horse was missing on another errand, and Harry himself was proud to bring Traveler. The general was absorbed in deep thought, and he did not notice until he was in the saddle who held the bridle. Ah, it's you, Lieutenant Kenton, he said. You are always where you are needed. You have been a good soldier. Harry flushed deeply with pleasure at such a compliment from such a source. I've tried to do my best, sir, he replied modestly. No one can do any more. You and Mr. Dalton keep close to me. We must go and deal with those people once more. His calm, steady tones brought Harry's courage back. To the young hero-worshipper, Lee himself was at least 50,000 men, and even with his scanty numbers, he could pluck victory from the very heart of defeat. There could no longer be any possible doubt that Grant was about to attack, and Lee made his dispositions rapidly. While he led the bulk of his army in person to the battle, Longstreet was left to face the army north of the James, while Gordon at the head of Ewell's old corps stood in front of Petersburg. Then Lee turned away to the right with less than 20,000 men to meet Grant, and fortified himself along the White Oak Road. Here he waited for the Union general, who had not yet brought up his masses. But Harry and Dalton felt quite sure that despite the disparity of numbers, Lee was the one who would attack. It had been so all through the war, and they knew that in the offensive lay the best defense. The event soon proved that they had read the general's mind aright. It was the last day of March when Lee suddenly gave the order for his gaunt veterans to advance, and they obeyed without faltering. The rains had ceased, a bright sun was shining, and the southern trumpets sang the charge as bravely as at the Second Manassas or Chancellorsville. They had only two thousand cavalry on their flank under Fitz Lee, but the veteran infantry advanced with steadiness and precision. Colonel Leonidas Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hillier were on foot now, having lost their horses long since. But, waving their small swords, they walked dauntlessly at the head of their little regiment, St. Clair and Langdon, a bit further back, showing equal courage. The speed of the southern charge increased, and they were met at first by only a scattering fire. The northern generals, not expecting Lee to move out of his works, were surprised. Before they could take proper precautions, Lee was upon them, and once more the rebel yell that had swelled in victory on so many fields rang out in triumph. The long lines of men in blue were driven in, then whole brigades were thrown back, and Harry felt a wild thrill of delight when he beheld success where success had not seemed possible. He saw near them the Invincibles charging home, and the two colonels still waving their swords as they led them and he saw also the worn faces of the veterans about him suffused once more with the fire of battle. He watched with glowing eyes as the fierce charge drove the northern masses back farther and farther. But the Union leaders, though taken by surprise, did not permit themselves and their troops to fall into panic. They had come too far and fought too many battles to lose the prize at the very last moment. Their own trumpets sounded on a long line, calling back the regiments and brigades. Although the South had gained much ground, Harry saw that the resistance was hardening rapidly. Grant and Sheridan were pouring in their masses. Heavy columns of infantry gathered in their front, and Sheridan's numerous and powerful cavalry began to cut away their flanks. The southern advance became slow and ceased entirely. Harry felt again that dreadful sinking in his heart. Leadership, valor, and sacrifice were of no avail when they were faced by leadership, valor, and sacrifice also added to overwhelming numbers. The battle was long and fierce, the men in gray throwing away their lives freely in charge after charge, but they were gradually borne back. 
Lee showed all his old skill and generalship, marshalling his men with coolness and precision, but Grant and Sheridan would not be denied. They too were cool and skillful, and when night came the southern army was driven back at all points, although it had displayed a valor never surpassed in any of the great battles of the war. But Lee's face had not yet shown any signs of despair when he gathered his men again in the old works. It was to Harry, however, one of the gloomiest nights that he had ever known. As a staff officer, he knew the desperate position of the southern force, and his heart was very heavy within him. He saw across the swamps and fields the innumerable northern campfires, and he heard the northern bugles calling to one another in the dusk. But as the night advanced, and he had duties to do, his courage rose once more. Since their great commander-in-chief was steady and calm, he would try to veto too. The opposing sentinels were very close to one another in the dark, and as usual they often talked. Harry, as he went on one errand or another, heard them sometimes, but he never interfered, knowing that nothing was to be gained by stopping them. Deep in the night, when he was passing through a small wood very close to the Union lines, a figure rose up before him. It was so dark that he did not know the man at first, but at the second look he recognized him. "'Shepard!' he exclaimed. "'You here?' "'Yes, Mr. Kenton,' replied the spy. "'It's Shepard, and you will not try to harm me. "'Why should you at such a moment? "'I'm within the Confederate lines for the last time. "'So you mean to give up your trade?' "'It's going to give me up. "'Chance has made you and me antagonists, Mr. Kenton, "'but our own little war, "'as well as the great war we're in "'in which we both fight, is about over. "'I will not come within the southern lines again "'because there is no need for me to do so. "'In a few days there will be no southern lines.' Don't think I'm trying to exult over you, but remember what I told you four years ago in Montgomery. The South has made a great and wonderful fight, but it was never possible for her to win. We are not beaten yet, Mr. Shepard. No, but you will be. I suppose you'll fight to the last, but the end is sure as the rising of tomorrow's sun. We have generals now who can't be driven back. Harry was silent because he had no answer to make, and Shepard resumed. I'm willing to tell you, Mr. Kenton, that your cousin, Mr. Mason, a captain now, is here with General Sheridan, and he went through today's battle uninjured. I'm glad, at any rate, that Dick is now a captain. He has earned the rank. He is my good friend, as I hope you will be after the war. I see no reason why we shouldn't. You've served the North in your own way, and I've served the South in mine. I want to say to you, Mr. Shepard, that if in our long personal struggle I held any malice against you, it's all gone now, and I hope that you hold none against me. I never felt any. Goodbye. Goodbye. Shepard was gone so quickly and with so little noise that he seemed to vanish in the air, and Harry turned back to his work, resolved not to believe the man's assertion that the war was over. He slept a little, and so did Dalton, but both were awake when the red dawn came alive with the crash of cannon and rifles. Shepard had spoken truly when he said that the North now had generals who would not be driven back, nor would they cease to attack. As soon as the light was sufficient, Grant and Sheridan began to press Lee with all their might. Pickett, who had led the great charge at Gettysburg, and Johnson, who held a place called Five Forks, were assailed fiercely by overpowering numbers, and despite a long and desperate resistance, their command was cut to pieces and the fragments scattered, leaving Lee's right flank uncovered. The day, like the one before it, ended in defeat and confusion, and, at the next dawn, Grant, silent, tenacious, came anew to the attack, his dense columns now assailing the front before Petersburg and carrying the trenches that had held them so long. The thin Confederate lines there fought in vain to hold them, 
but the Union brigades, exultant and cheering, burst through everything, flung aside those of their foes whom they did not overthrow, and advanced toward the city. Here fell the famous Lieutenant General A. P. Hill, a man of frail body and valiant soul, beloved of Lee and the whole army. The next noon came, somber to Harry beyond all description. The youngest officer knew that while General Lee was still in Petersburg, he could no longer hold it, and that they were nearly surrounded by the victorious and powerful Union host. The break in the lines had been made just after sunrise, and they had been widened in the later hours of the morning. Now there was a momentary lull in the firing, but the lifting clouds of smoke enabled them to see the vast masses of men in blue advancing and already in the suburbs of the town. Lee's headquarters were about a mile and a half west of Petersburg, where he stood on a lawn and watched the progress of the combat. Nearly opposite him was a tall observatory that the Union men had erected, and from its summit the northern generals also were watching. Harry and Dalton stood near Lee, awaiting with orders his call, and every detail he saw that day always remained impressed upon Harry Kenton's mind. He intently watched the general, feeling that the southern army was so near destruction, he thought that the face of Lee would show agitation, but it was not so. His calm and grave demeanor was unchanged. He was in full uniform of fine gray, and had even buckled to his belt his dress sword which he seldom carried. It was told of him that he said that morning that if he were compelled to surrender he would do so in his best, but he had not yet given up hope. Harry turned his eyes from Lee to the enemy. Without the aid of glasses now, he saw the great columns of blue advancing, preceded by tremendous fire of artillery that filled the air with bursting shells. The infantry themselves were advancing with the bayonet, and the sunlight gleamed on the polished metal. As far as he could see, the ring of fire and steel extended. One heavy column was advancing toward the very lawn which they stood. Looks as if they're going to trample us underfoot, said Dalton. Yeah, but the general may still find a way out of it, said Harry. They're still coming, said Dalton. The shells were bursting around them, and bullets too began to strike upon the lawn. A battery that sought to drive back the advancing columns was exposed to such heavy fire that it was compelled to limber up and retreat. The officers urged Lee to withdraw, and at length, mounting Traveler, he rode back slowly and deliberately to his inner line. Harry often wondered what his feelings were on that day, but whatever they were, his face expressed nothing. When he stopped in his new position, he said to one of his staff, but without raising his voice, This is bad business, Colonel. Harry heard him say a little later to another officer, Well, Colonel, it has happened as I told them it would at Richmond. The line has stretched until it has broken. But the general and his staff were not permitted to remain long at their second stop. The Union columns never ceased to press the shattered southern army. Their great artillery, served with all the rapidity and accuracy that had marked it all through the war, poured showers of shell and grape and canister upon the thin ranks in gray, and the rifles were close enough to add their own stream of missiles to the irresistible fire. Harry was in great fear for his general. It seemed as if the northern gunners had recognized him and his staff. Perhaps they knew his famous warhorse traveler as he rode slowly away, but in any event the shells began to strike on all sides of the little group. One burst just behind Lee. Another killed the horse of an officer close to him, and the bursting fragments inflicted slight wounds upon members of the staff. Lee, for the first time, showed emotion. Looking back over his shoulder, his eyes blazed, and his cheeks flushed. Harry knew he wished to turn and order a charge, 
but there was nothing with which to charge, and withdrawing his gaze from the threatening artillery, he rode steadily on. The general's destination now was an earthwork in the suburbs of the city, manned by a reserve force, small but ardent and defiant. It welcomed Lee and his staff with resounding cheers, and Harry's heart sprang up again. Here at least was confidence, and as they rode behind them, the guns replied fiercely to the advancing northern batteries, checking them for a little while and giving the retreating troops a chance to rest. Now came a lull in the fighting, but Harry knew well that it was only a lull. Presently, Grant and Sheridan would press harder than ever. They were fully aware of the condition of the southern army, its smallness and exhaustion, and they would never cease to hurl upon it their columns of cavalry and infantry, and to rake it with the numerous batteries of great guns served so well. Once more his heart sank low as he thought of what the next night might bring forth. He knew that General Lee had sent in the morning a messenger to the capital with a statement that Petersburg could be held no longer, and that he would retreat in the night. Every effort was made to gather the remaining portion of the southern army into one strong, cohesive body. Longstreet, at the order of Lee, left his position north of the James River, while Gordon took charge of the lines to the east of Petersburg. It was when they gathered for this last stand that Harry realized fully how many of the great Confederate officers were gone. It was here that he first heard of the death of A.P. Hill, of whom he had seen so much at Gettysburg, and he choked as he thought of Stonewall Jackson, Jeb Stuart, Turner Ashby, and the long roll of illustrious fallen who were heroes to him. The northern infantry and the cavalry did not charge now, but the cannon continued their work. Battery after battery poured its fire upon the earthworks, although the men there, shattered by the trenches, did not suffer so much for the present. Harry found time to look up his friends, and discovered the Invincibles in a single trench, about sixty of them left, but all showing a cheerfulness extraordinary in such a situation. It was characteristic of both Colonel Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire that they should present a bolder front the more desperate their case, nor were the younger officers less assured. Captain Arthur St. Clair was carefully dusting from his clothing dirt that had been thrown there by bursting shells, and Lieutenant Thomas Langdon was contemplating with satisfaction the track of a bullet that had gone through his left sleeve without touching the arm. The sight of you is welcome, Harry, said Colonel Leonidas Talbot in even tones. It is pleasant to know at such a time that one's friend is alive, because the possibilities are always against it. Still, Harry, I've always felt that you bear a charmed life, and so do St. Clair and Langdon. Tell me, is it true that we evacuate Petersburg tonight? It's no secret, sir. The orders have been issued that we do. If we must go, we must. But it's no time for repining. Well, the town has been defended long and valiantly against overwhelming numbers. If we lose it, we lose with glory. It can never be said of the South we were not as brave and tenacious as any people that ever lived. The northern armies that fight us will be the first to give us that credit, sir. That is true. Soldiers who have tested the mettle of one another on innumerable desperate fields do not bear malice, and are always ready to acknowledge the merits of the foe. Ah, uh, see how closely that shell burst to us, and another, and a third, and a fourth. Hector, you read the message, do you not? Certainly, Leonidas. It's as plain as print to you and me. John Carrington, good old John, honest old John, is now in command of that group of batteries on the right. He's been in charge of guns elsewhere, and has been suddenly shifted to this point. The great increase in volume and accuracy of fire proves it. Right, Hector. He's surely there as we are here. 
The voice of those cannons is the voice of John Carrington. Well, if we're to be crushed, I prefer the good old John do it. But we're not crushed, Leonidas. We go out of Petersburg tonight, beating off every attack of the enemy, and if we can't hold Richmond, we'll march into North Carolina, gathered together all the remaining forces of the Confederacy, and directed by the incomparable genius of our great commander, we'll yet win the victory. Right, Hector, right. Pardon me, my moment of depression, but it's only a moment, remember, and it will not occur again. The loss of a capital, even if it should come to that, does not necessarily mean the loss of a cause. Among the hills and mountains of North Carolina we can hold out forever. Harry was cheered by them, but he did not fully share their hopes and beliefs. Aren't those two the greatest men you've ever known? whispered St. Clair to him. If honesty and grandeur of soul make greatness, they surely are, replied Harry freely. He returned now to his general side, and watched the great bombardment. Scores of guns in a vast half-circle were raining shells upon the slender Confederate lines. The blaze was continuous on a long front, and huge clouds of smoke gathered above. Harry believed that the entire Union army would move forward and attack their works, but the charge did not come. Evidently, Grant remembered Cold Harbor, and feeling that his enemy was in his grasp, he refrained from useless sacrifices. Another terrible night, lighted up by the flash of cannon and thundering with the crash of batteries, came, and Lee, collecting his army of less than 20,000 men, moved out of Petersburg. It tore Harry's heart to leave the city where they had held Grant at bay so long, but he knew the necessity. They could not live another day under that concentrated and awful fire. They might stay and surrender, or retreat and fight again, and valiant souls would surely choose the latter. The march began just after twilight turned to night, and the darkness and clouds of skirmishers hid it from the enemy. They crossed the Appomattox, and then advanced on the Hickory Road on the north side of the river. General Lee stood on foot, but with the bridle of Traveler in his hand and his staff about him at the entrance to the road, and watched the troops as they marched past. His composure and steadfastness seemed to Harry as great as ever, and his voice never broke as he spoke now and then to the marching men. Nor was the spirit of the men crushed. Again and again they cheered as they saw the strong figure of the gray commander who had led them so often to victory nor were they shaken by the booming of the cannon behind them, nor by the tremendous crashes that marked the explosions of the magazines in Petersburg. When the last soldier had passed, General Lee and his staff mounted their horses and followed the army in the dusk and gloom. Behind them, lofty fires shed a glaring light over fallen Petersburg. End of chapter 16 Recorded by Michael Packard of Western Colorado